Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Troop tensions, NATO puts extra forces on standby over the Ukraine crisis. Police probe, the UK government facing fresh Partygate scandal scrutiny. And turbulent Tuesday, markets remain volatile as the IMF cuts global growth forecasts. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Tensions over Ukraine show no sign of de-escalation. In fact, quite the opposite, with 8,500 U.S. troops on standby for deployment to Eastern Europe as Russian troops mass on Ukraine's border and NATO beefing up its presence with weapons, ships and fighter jets. In the last few moments, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said the U.K. would not hesitate to toughen sanctions on Russia. The Ukrainian foreign minister spoke with our Clarissa Ward exclusively a short time ago. He rejects giving Russia any concessions. If anyone makes a concession on Ukraine, behind Ukraine's back, first, we will not accept that. We will, we, we, we will not be in a position of a country that picks up the phone, hears the instruction of the big power and follows it. No. We paid a lot, including 15,000 lives of our citizens to secure the right to decide our own future, our own destiny. And we will not allow anyone to impose any concessions on us. Sam Kali's in Kiev for us and Nick Robertson in Moscow. Sam, I'll come to you first. The foreign minister there, I think, cutting to the core of Ukraine's fears that they're cut out of any real negotiations that take place here. Are they also reassured by what they're seeing elsewhere? I don't think they're reassured at all by the behaviour of foreign diplomats here. Indeed, uh, the President Zelensky and a number of ministers here have all been rushing to reassure their own local population, the Ukrainians, that there isn't, in their view, an imminent danger of a Russian invasion and to remain calm. And the reason for that is that the US, UK, Germany and Australia have begun to order the evacuation of their so-called non-essential staff and families from the embassies here. Now, that is... Uh, being seen as as something of a bad sign in terms of the uh, morale of the Ukrainian population. But on the the other hand, they are getting a military boost in the morale, as you say, by those reassuring statements coming from the United States, uh, from Boris Johnson, and more importantly, perhaps, the delivery of some more uh, foreign military aid coming from the United States. Among uh, the new consignment due to arrive any second now here in Kiev is the Uh, a large amount of weaponry, including Javelin anti-tank missiles, which really in the sort of battlefields likely to unfold here, uh, an almost strategic weapon that's on top of the short range, uh, similar sorts of weapons, smaller weapons, though, that the British have been supplying uh, a week or so ago. So, Julia, uh, there are 
militarily reassurance, but politically and diplomatically, not so much. A very important statement there also being made by the Ukrainian Foreign Minister Clarissa Ward, uh, saying that you can't go behind our backs and make any deals. What he's saying there is he's aware of little frictions, little fractions, little fractures emerging between the United States and a number of European partners, possibly Germany, refusing to supply weapons uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and he making sure that there isn't going to be, from the Ukrainian perspective, any kind of wobbling among the allies, Julia. Absolutely. Nick, come in here, because I think the message as well from the Ukrainian president to the people yesterday was don't panic. I mean, you get the sense when, when a president's telling you not to panic that that's exactly what's going on. How is Moscow viewing all the moves that are being made here, whether it's troops, whether it's deployment of weapons and support, or, again, to Sam's point, that the talks behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, Russia is willing to play up any kind of division that it sees because that's, you know, part of its tactical toolbox. It's created a tension. It's created a narrative for talks. It's got the talks. It continues to apply the uh, psychological pressure of building forces for, it says, training exercises on the border with Ukraine. The Kremlin spokesman said that President Biden's consideration of, uh, of potentially sending 8,500 U.S. troops uh, to the eastern flanks of, uh, of NATO and the eastern side of Europe considers that uh, adding to that tension, Russia's narrative through all of this has been that it's the West that's trying to sort of create some kind of provocative action. Uh, according to the Kremlin, it is the Ukrainian government that's driving up tensions uh, along the border with Ukraine by amassing troops and military equipment close to that separatist region in the east of Ukraine around Donbass. So, you know, the, the Kremlin sees this as uh, through, through that perspective. But undoubtedly, and we heard this last night from the foreign ministry spokeswoman, they pick up on, on points like just that that you mentioned, that the Ukrainian government and leadership is trying to settle the nerves of its population. Indeed, the uh, head of the Defense Council said that uh, there was, and this was the quote, quote coming from the foreign ministry spokeswoman here, saying that there was, they didn't see, the Ukrainians didn't see any imminent all-out invasion by Russia, and then countering that with a quote by uh, the Pentagon spokesman saying that the, the United States sees no de-escalation, and saying that the United States is trying to undermine the morale of the Ukrainians. This this is a sort of a classic tactic of seeing those small chinks of daylight, those small gaps, those small divisions, and just pry them open a little bit more. No concessions given, no, no movement down the diplomatic track, no movement overtly across Ukraine's borders, yet exploiting those differences there. Yeah, an application of the inconsistencies. Um, Sam, very quickly, because I want to ask Nick this too, it's tough to see Russia backing down without some kind of concession from NATO and their allies. Is there anything that you could see that can keep all parties happy here, whether it's NATO and the allies, the United States, Russia and Ukraine, given the concerns that they're voicing? Not from the Ukrainian perspective, no. This is a, a, an issue of national sovereignty. NATO have dug in along uh, that line very firmly, insisting that uh, there can and will be no di discussion over NATO or indeed Europe without either of those two parties with the United States. That, as Nick was saying, is a schism that uh, the Russians trying to exploit by trying to do bilateral talks with the United States, trying to prize the US away from other NATO partners and, and indeed not just NATO partners, but the European nations. This affects people who are not part of NATO, not necessarily even part of the European Union, but are in Europe. So 
These are all areas where they can exploit those sorts of frictions. But at the same time, there is a much wider principle at work here, which is that if there is any kind of opportunity taken by the Russians, the extent to which the response uh, would be uh, strong enough to sort of win the argument longer term. If the Russians sliced off a little bit more of Ukrainian land, would that satisfy Putin in the short term? Would it undermine the Ukrainian capacity to operate as a freestanding economic entity? Or could he effectively cut the Achilles heel of the economy here and leave it as a sort of vassal state? That might well be an end game. And it's precisely avoiding that sort of an outcome that's so important for Europe and NATO. And that is where those frictions and schisms potentially lie, Julia. I mean, slicing off a piece, though, at least in some part, perhaps unites allies, where there's plenty more that Russia could do that wouldn't and would sow further division. Nick, your view, any concession here that could perhaps appease, please, all parties? Yeah, we just heard Boris Johnson in Parliament saying that uh, Putin shouldn't think that he can salami slice off any piece of Ukraine, that any incursion is going to incur those very, very tough penalties. You know, where there's been, you know, where there has been any hope on the NATO side of getting Russia to any sort of agreement and Russia's not really picked up on this at all yet. And that's the idea that you can um, have some kind of reciprocity of forced disposition um, for, for on NATO's side and on Russia's side and training exercises would be sort of more telegraphed in advance. There'd be more openness on that. There could be um, bigger, longer lasting uh, missile controls uh, that have sort of fallen by the wayside um, over the past few years, that that's a possibility. But, but, but Russia's demands have been so maximalist and so public, and when you put them in writing and hand them separately to NATO and the US as they did, um, it seems hard that, uh, that that kind of off-ramp is there. But look, what Russia is capable of doing, it is saying that these massive troop deployments, whether it's the, whether it's the Navy training right now in the Baltic Sea with uh, training against submarines, against aircraft, against mines, whether it's that massive troop deployment that's building up in Belarus, just not far from the capital. Kiev in Ukraine, whether it's the forces on the east of uh, Ukraine that are already there, the 100,000 or so Russian forces. You know, Russia says these are all there for training. It is in Russia's scope to build them up and keep them there and maintain the pressure and keep the pressure on and keep the pressure on and keep the pressure on. And then when they feel there's a little bit of something, then they can say to their own population, well, we've, we've done with those military exercises. We can, dial them, we can dial them back. And the narrative that they've pushed domestically isn't as maximalist as the one that they pushed internationally. So is there room for maneuver for a climb down? Is there room for that diplomatic off-ramp to work? There is, but the tensions are escalating right now and, and no one's on that off-ramp. Mm, very important points. Sam, Nick, great to have you. Thank you. OK, lockdown parties under investigation. London's Metropolitan Police are looking into alleged Downing Street events, including Boris Johnson's birthday bash in 2020. As a result, firstly, of the information provided by the Cabinet Office inquiry team, and secondly, my officer's own assessment, I can confirm that the Met is now investigating a number of events that took place at Downing Street and Whitehall in the last two years in relation to potential breaches of COVID-19 regulations. Scott McLean is live in London with the latest. Scott, Scott, so now a police investigation into 
Some of these parties were not clear, I don't believe, at this stage on which specific events are being investigated. But this is also going to have consequences, surely, for the independent investigation that was being carried out into these two. Exactly, Julia. So not to get too far into the weeds, but basically this civil service investigation that was was uh, taking place and expected to have a report generated this week. Well, the parts that have been turned over to the police have essentially been put on pause. Sue Gray, that senior civil servant leading the investigation, continues to look into other things. But what's not clear is when we might actually know what the result of her investigation or the police investigation might be. Things got a lot more complicated here. And what's really interesting is listening to Chrisetta Dick, the head of the London Metropolitan Police, is in her, uh, her criteria for justifying this investigation they do not look good for Boris Johnson. Two of those things include evidence that people knew that what they were doing was an offense. Obviously, Boris Johnson and his staff, they were the ones involved in writing the rules. And also that there was clearly no reasonable defense. Not a good sign. Again, now the prime minister insists that he never broke the law, but he says that he is supportive of the police investigation. Um, The prime minister is trying to shrug, shrug this off. But of course, headlines like this, Julia... Uh, Prime Minister's number 10 birthday bash in lockdown, not helping, not technically lockdown, but there were severe restrictions at the time. Indoor gatherings were were banned, so indoor social gatherings were banned, and uh, outdoor ones were limited to just six people. Or this headline, also not helping, you can't have your birthday cake and eat it, Boris. So this morning, the Transportation Secretary was sent out onto all of the morning television shows in this country to try to defend the Prime Minister. And what his argument was essentially is that, look, it wasn't Boris Johnson who baked the cake or who brought it to work or who organized this party. These were factors outside of his control. I think others would probably argue that, look, you're the Prime Minister, you're setting the rules, you also need to set the tone. The reality here, Julia, is that it's not legal jeopardy necessarily that Boris Johnson needs to worry about. The result of any police investigation would be uh, at worst likely a fine, maybe a series of fines, depending on how many investigations are are going on into how many incidents. The issue is if the police are to found that Boris Johnson did break the law, well, that tells every MP that he clearly broke the law, the laws that he himself was writing, and that may provide some ammunition for them to vote uh, against the confidence of their leader, sparking uh, more political turmoil for the Conservative Party and perhaps a a new leader. The Labour Party uh, in Parliament today was framing this as potential criminality and truly damning. Uh, They're also potentially seeming to take aim at one of Boris Johnson's uh, potential leadership successors, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak. He's Boris Johnson's neighbor. Angela Rayner, the deputy opposition leader, was asking about what he knew uh, about this and whether or not police have asked uh, him about this. And this is a pretty good time for the opposition parties to pounce, Julia, because, of course, Boris Johnson is trailing. His conservative party is trailing in national polls. And even his personal brand has taken a real hit here as well. Even the vast majority of conservatives, according to a new poll, believe that he's not been so honest throughout all of this. Yeah, to your point, uh, the bigger point here, he's not going to court as a result of any uh, accusations here in police findings, but the court of public opinion is uh, far more important, perhaps, in this case. Scott McLean, thank you for that. You bet. Okay, on to global market volatility. This Tuesday, U.S. futures pointing to another sharply lower open. All this as the International Monetary Fund lowers its global growth target by half a percentage point this year to 4.4%. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, we'll talk about the IMF afterwards, but let's talk about what we're seeing in financial markets because you and I were talking about this before Christmas. 
We're going through a regime change, a fundamental yes. regime change in the approach now from the Federal Reserve. And actually, it's something that we've not seen for, or investors have not seen for well, the best part of two decades. Completely new territory here, right? I mean, it's just 2022 is going to be a very different and potentially volatile year with lots of headline risk. You know, I've been saying that if 20, most of 2020 and 2021 was downhill skiing for investors, 2022 is an obstacle course. In fact, the, the chief of the IMF this week said the global economy will face an obstacle course in 2022. So you have a Fed that will start raising interest rates. The very same time, earnings that have been so, so good, right? the last year and a half will probably have could have more mixed results and more headwinds. Inflation's still a big problem in the U.S. And again, on that Fed risk, I mean, the Fed has to uh, thread this needle absolutely perfectly here and telegraph, I think, to to markets, right, and the public exactly what it's doing and when. Yes, we are well and truly off piste to use your <laughs> ski analogy, I think, here. And the IMF's interesting to me because they are saying, look, actually, the United States is slowing more, to your point about being very precise about how the Federal Reserve responds here and calibrating three things at once, stopping asset purchases, raising interest rates, and reducing the Fed balance sheet. Yeah. We are in well and truly uncharted waters, but there's a lot of other things for investors to deal with. To your point, earnings, uh, geopolitical risk, potential risk that higher oil prices create some kind of greater slowdown in Europe. There is a lot to deal with at this moment. You've got to expect volatility. I think so. And really, I mean, also volatility, but in perspective. I mean, the past two years have been yeah. exceptional for for um, for investors, right? I mean, really exceptional returns for investors the past a couple of years. And when you do look at earnings, companies have managed very, very well through um, through COVID, but the supply chain issues still persist. Inflation, there's a worry. Maybe that the Fed is a bit behind the curve on inflation. How aggressive will the Fed be? Goldman Sachs has four rate hikes uh, this year. We're not expecting one this week. And, you know, Julie, a lot of people have been asking me, if I, if I think that the Fed could have a surprise uh, rate hike this week. I think Jerome Powell, and correct me if you disagree, I think that they're going to try to be very, very straightforward about what they're doing and when, so as not to really royal markets, right, and, and do anything that catches anybody off guard, right? When do I ever disagree with you, Christine <laughs> Romans, despite my best efforts? It will be pointless to shock people at this stage. They're pricing yeah. interest rate hikes. Yep. We can see tensions being created Clear telegraphing is the uh, is the way forward here as best they can. Yeah, concur. Christine, okay, Williams. thank you. Let's go really go skiing for real next time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you and me, carefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and returning to our top story, escalating global tensions and the Biden administration's biggest test yet. On an 80-minute call, President Biden and European leaders discussed preparations to impose severe economic costs in response to Russia's military buildup on the Ukrainian border. The sanctions threat has just been echoed by British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And as many as 8,500 U.S. troops are on heightened alert for possible deployment to Eastern Europe. According to the Defense Department, they will be prepared for any contingencies. Quote. Clearly, we're all wondering, is this wider conflict coming? Ian Bremer is president and founder of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media and joins us now. Ian, always great to have you on the show and Happy New Year. Um, the conversation 
around Russia's options seems very binary at times. And perhaps that's just me and the media, but it's sort of invasion or, or de-escalation. And you point out there's a whole spectrum of options in between. And some of those actually far more likely than the worst case scenario here. Just walk us through this. Well, some of those they've already been doing. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw some low-level but still significant Russian cyber attacks against Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian government uh, websites and servers. Uh, that is asymmetric warfare, and I think you know they can certainly escalate that kind of activity, and I expect they would uh, as diplomacy doesn't work out. There are also all sorts of military steps the Russians can take that fall well short of a full-on invasion of Ukraine and an overthrow of the Ukrainian government. For example, the Russians presently informally occupy the Ukrainian territory of Donbass, but they've never done it officially with Russian troops. In fact, they say that Russian passport holders in the Donbass are being threatened. Acts of genocide, they say, falsely, are being committed against them by the Ukrainian government. So one natural thing that they might do would be to send troops, roll tanks, into the Donbass. Now, the Americans would consider that an invasion. Would that trigger the same kind of response that thousands of Ukrainians dead and the end of the Ukrainian democracy would? Of course it wouldn't. So, I mean, I think one thing to be very clear is that Putin is not likely to try to make it easy for the Americans and the Europeans to respond strongly and collectively. And that, that's how we should be thinking from his perspective of what kind of options he has going forward. So this is such an important point, because to your point with the Donbass region, and we've already seen that, the problem bubbles along and the calibration of response between the United States, NATO allies, Europe, for example, would differ perhaps to different degrees other than a direct invasion, which would unite them. And to your point, right. Russia knows this. And I think that President Biden has been doing a lot of work radically different than, say, the um, withdrawal from Afghanistan, where the allies were informed, basically, after the decisions were made. Here, they really want this to be multilateral. And one of the reasons you have these announcements of 8,500 troops being put on alert, and then just yesterday, you saw a number of NATO allies sending weapon systems forward deployments to the Baltic states, to Lithuania, to Bulgaria, to Romania, closer to Russia. That wasn't just the Americans. That was the French, that was the Danes, that was the Spaniards, that were all participating in that. The Biden administration really wants to try to show the Russians that even in the case of lower level incursion, as he said in his press conference last week, that the costs that the Russians are going to have to pay will be unacceptable. It's not worth it. And, uh, and that's a harder message for the Americans to deliver, especially given the level of economic dependence that so many Europeans have for continued good relations with Russia. Yeah, you know, it's hard, and we've talked about this already on the show today, it's hard to see Russia backing down without some kind of concession for, from NATO and, and their allies. What, what might that concession be? Is there such a concession that everybody can walk away here saying, we got something out of this, whether it was de-escalation or whatever it is that, that Russia wants? Is there some compromise here that works for all? Uh, well, we're going to find out. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons why diplomacy has been going so far without negotiations is because the Americans don't yet have a real strong sense of exactly what Putin's red lines are, what the priorities are. The, the public statements that were made by the Kremlin were a grab bag of demands, um, that many of which were inconceivable for the United States to effectively respond to. But, I mean, it is true 
that NATO has been working more closely with the Ukrainians in recent years. It's true that they've been sending them more weapons. It's true that they've had more trainers on the ground, soldiers on the ground engaging in training, more cyber coordination, more joint exercises. All of those things are areas where the Americans and NATO could have negotiations that could be constructive in response for a Russian de-escalation. You could even potentially have, with Ukraine's agreement, a period of time where Ukraine would not join NATO. It could be like an Iranian nuclear deal, say five years. In return, the Russians would have to provide some significant security guarantees. Both sides could walk away from that, and then the deal would be broken. Um, I'm not saying that this that both sides can get to yes. In fact, President Biden, in his press conference last week, said, on balance, he thinks the Russians are going to go in. That doesn't mean he wants them to, but I, I don't think, I mean, even though bo the both sides are right now engaged in diplomacy, uh, it doesn't look like we're heading towards a diplomatic breakthrough as it stands right now. What about timing on any real significant adjustment to, to Russia's position here with the, the troop buildup? I'm just trying to imagine the conversation, the phone call between President Putin and President Xi, if anything happened prior to the Beijing Olympics or even during the Beijing Olympics. Well, first of all, the big um, activities that are happening, the military exercises in Belarus, uh, I believe don't start until February 3rd. And that is a significant additional buildup of military forces that the Russians would clearly want in place before they took uh, significant measures. Secondly, uh, with President Putin going to Beijing for the Olympics opening, I do believe it's hard to imagine that the Russians would want to put the Chinese in a position uh, where they'd have to say something about it, and also where the, the world attention will be distracted away from President Xi's, uh, you know, sort of big celebration, even with COVID protocols being what they are. Uh, I think that that would damage the most important strategic Russia relationship they have right. globally right now, which is with Beijing. So I think we still have some time, but I also, again, expect that if we're talking about incremental ratcheting up of pressure, it's not that the Olympics are over and suddenly there's an invasion. For example, Julia, one thing that's coming up soon next month is that the Belarusian government is going to change their constitution with a referendum that says they're no longer neutral and they're no longer non-nuclear. So I could easily see after that referendum, that the Belarusian government announced that there's going to be a permanent Russian deployment with nuclear weapons. And a lot of those are going to be right on the Ukrainian border. Increases pressure, but doesn't invade Ukraine. I, I think that you're, you're more likely to see steps like that than you are suddenly to see the Russians with hundreds of tanks rolling into Ukrainian territory. Yeah, the sequencing here is, um, is quite fascinating. The timing, as always, um, with these kind of strategic moves that, that Putin makes. Um, I want to bring in another leader here, uh, embattled in his own right, but obviously was out this morning being very forthright about his potential response, or the UK's potential response to any further aggression and sanctions. And I'm talking about Boris Johnson, perhaps no surprise given his, his troubles at home. Ian, what do you make of what's going on in the UK and, um, and Boris's future? Yeah, he's holding on by a few threads uh, to power right now as prime minister. And, and clearly one of those threads um, is uh, the actions going on in Ukraine. He wants to be seen as steadfast ally of the United States and NATO. Um, it was his foreign secretary that over the weekend released the intelligence documents that they had uh, of a potential Russian plan to remove the Ukrainian prime minister um, and bring a new government in. 
I mean, you know, very sort of uh, salacious headline type details that I'm sure do reflect a scenario. I mean, if Putin says to his intelligence uh, organizations, I want a plan for what I could do to invade Ukraine and overthrow the government, they're going to give him a plan. That doesn't mean he's going to do it. But it's interesting that the, I mean, the Americans had the same information. The Brits really wanted to leak it. Why? Because Boris Johnson is just trying to stay Boris Johnson at this point, and he's not succeeding. Uh, the investigations continue to expand around his personal behavior in, on several occasions, breaching COVID protocols and lying to the public about it. it. It does seem like he's hemorrhaging support from his own conservative MPs every day. Hard to imagine he's going to be there for much longer. Yes. Ian, always great to chat to you. Thank you. Ian Bremer, president and founder of Eurasia Group and G-Zero Media. Great to chat to you as always. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And U.S. stocks are beginning today's session weaker as expected. A continuation of the pretty wild global market swings over the past 24 hours. Volatility and trading volume hitting recent peaks. A reflection of market fear and uncertainty over what the Federal Reserve does and when. And that it will no longer ride to the rescue of falling markets. What's better known as the Fed put. Tomorrow's Fed policy statement could be a hawkish one, reflecting its growing inflationary concerns. The Fed put, as it's known, may be in trouble. But is there still a profit put, a.k.a. are companies going to ride to the rescue to some degree with juicy profits? Well, Microsoft reporting profits after the market close. IBM already out with encouraging Q4 sales growth numbers. Tech bull Dan Ives, a regular on this program, says this tech profit season will be the most important in a decade. We'll discuss in a moment one market positive, Bitcoin. Oh, just hanging on in the green there. Lots of talk about how closely correlated the leading cryptocurrency is to stock market moves. David Balin joins us now. He's the chief investment officer at City Global Wealth. David, happy new year and great to have you with us. Um, this kind of market action tends to lead to lots of client phone calls saying, what on earth's going on? What are people asking you and how are you responding? Terrific question. And that's exactly what's going on. So what most people are wondering is, why was there such great volatility and what is going on with the Fed and should we be fearing what the Fed is going to do? And I think what we're seeing is, is this uh, real realignment in the stock market, some of which is fundamental, but some of which is really associated with retail traders. And what I mean by that is that we're seeing technology shares get hit in particular. They're highly speculative, they're sensitive to interest rates, and that makes sense to us. But the idea somehow that the Federal Reserve is going to take action that is going to cause the economy to slow markedly in an attempt to stem inflation that is really due to a pandemic and is highly unusual seems kind of odd to us. So a lot of our conversations with our clients is about needing to stay firm and to understand that this transition right to a Fed that is going to not provide support is different than one that is going to actually try to tamp down economic activity. So what you're saying is there is an element of panic that we see going on in the markets here and, and the goods being sold with some of the relatively bad, let's say, or the overpriced. And these moves have perhaps gone too far. That is exactly correct. I can't say that they've gone too far, but I'll tell you this. If you take a look at put call volumes, right, and the amount of activity, right, from retail investors, especially those investors that are new in the market, we're seeing, you know, I would describe somewhat of a panic behavior and speculative behavior on their part. And we are definitely seeing those companies that are profitless and really have, you know, exposure just to pure, you know, what, what is it worth today type of valuations. Those are the ones that are getting hit hardest. What was different about yesterday 
is that the panic moved into traditional shares. And as it moved into traditional shares, professional investors, right, and traders stepped in and bought these shares when, when, when we saw valuations go down. Um, and that to me is indicative, right, of a market in transition. One for the last two years that has been rife with speculation, rife with small trades of, of companies that don't necessarily make sense to a market that is going to now transition to fundamental valuations and, as you said, fundamental earnings. Those companies that can earn, that can pay dividends, that do buybacks, that have growth potential, above average growth potential, those are going to be highly valued over the next two years. And we think markets are going to be higher over the next two years than they've been as a result. And what you're already saying is that people are are being more discerning. They're recognizing that there's indiscriminate selling to some degree here and there's already opportunities to buy. Where do you go in this kind of market where there is this degree of confusion perhaps and concern about the Federal Reserve over responding to some of the risks out there? Where are the, and it's a tough word to use at this moment, but the relative, let's call it that, safe havens? So, yeah, I'm not sure that safety is, is all that, you, you know, it's cracked up to be. But let, yes. let's look at where great value Port in, in the, the storm. Right? Better. Right, exactly. <laughs> so we want to take a look at consumer staple stocks, right? So as shipping cost comes down, as the cost of inputs for goods goes down, uh, these companies are going to benefit, right? And the supply opens up. And we're seeing all of those things happen right now. Those companies, the consumer staples companies, not only will see earnings grow, but they're also going to see increasing dividends. And they're some of the largest dividend payers out there. That's a great section of the market. Healthcare shares, especially large pharma and other areas that give us moderate growth but have dividends of four or five percent or more are terrific. Imagine if you get paid five percent of dividends and the stock goes up five or ten percent. Great total nice. return opportunity. Mm. Right? FinTech is another area. Everyone's saying, well, that's going to get hammered. But if you take a look at those companies that are generating cash flow and you just project out for a year or a year and a half, 15 or 20 percent growth in their top line, which is what they're saying they're going to do. You know, that to me presents an area where those companies become very normal valued. And then cybersecurity, another area, again, that has been hit a great deal in value because it's a technology stock. On the other hand, cyber is a major area with five year growth rates out there of 20 plus percent. So you combine these new areas, right, these tilts toward dividends, toward healthcare, toward consumer staples with an increased exposure to selectively those technology shares that are going to benefit from really unstoppable trends. That to us is a good portfolio right now. Yeah, and it's a more medium to long term portfolio, too, which is important. David, I have about 30 seconds. Crypto, Bitcoin, these have all taken a real hammering. What are your clients doing here, those that are in? Well, it's interesting. You know, first of all, we don't consider them core aspects of our portfolio. But for anyone watching, right, if you take a look at how crypto behaved in the last couple of days, looked a whole lot like tech shares and a Mm. whole lot like speculative trading, right, and not a lot like an asset that you would think of as a core holding given how it's behaving right now. And I think there's a lesson here, right, which is that market is in the process of maturing. But to call it a core holding given how it's behaving to me is actually uh, it's actually premature. So buyer beware. That's what I think. And I think we have to be very you know, careful that we look at our core assets, those that we are, are trying to grow for the long term and think about, you know, 85 or 90 percent of a client's assets in core and only 10 or 15 percent in speculative and not the other way around. David, great to chat to you. David Balin, Chief Investment Officer at City Global Well, sir. Thank you so much for that. Now Pleasure. Have a good day. You too. Going back to the future of the metaverse, we speak to the founder of Second Life, who was creating virtual worlds when Mark Zuckerberg was still at high school. His perspective next.
Welcome back to First Move and welcome to one of the earliest virtual worlds. Second Life is a forerunner of the digital reality worlds that are now referred to as the metaverse. It's an online multimedia platform that allows people to create an avatar for themselves and have a second life in a virtual space. One million people are still active in Second Life, spending nearly $1 billion a year. And its creator is now returning to the company to take on the metaverse. Joining us now is Philip Rosedale, the creator of Second Life, and he's the founder and strategic advisor of Linden Lab and co-founder of High Fidelity. Philip, great to have you on the show. You're back, but you Thanks left in 2010. Welcome. And if I chart your course since then, You've been in the same concepts and the same themes, which is creating sort of an internet-connected virtual world. What's the appeal? I, you know, I've thought a lot about that over all the years that I've been working on this stuff. I, I think for me, the excitement of the internet from the very beginning was the idea that you might be able to get people together in a shared space where they could make things and they could communicate and they could do business with each other and just sort of, you know, recreate another world. I was fascinated uh, with seeing if I could do that. Why is that better than what we can do in real life or picking up a phone it or isn't, an email? <laughs> it isn't necessarily. I think that's one of the cautionary things for us all to think about as we build yeah. these types of worlds. But uh, it is better because you do feel like you're talking to somebody face to face, which even over Zoom, as we all know in these last couple of years, uh, it doesn't quite work. And so the the allure of um, standing next to someone in a virtual world as an avatar instead of a person has a lot of appeal. And of, of course, you know, even more right now with COVID uh, having happened. You know, how does the Facebook's vision of Meta uh, differ from perhaps what you envisioned for, for better or for worse? And, and how does it compare, I think, to the social media platforms and the amount of time that we spend on those today and how they work versus the metaverse? Do you anticipate us spending sort of more time in the metaverse even than we have done on social media because there's, there's cost and benefits there too. There certainly are. And I think what we've learned about social media, particularly in these last, say, 10 years, has taught us a lot. I think one of the most important distinctions that can be made as we build virtual worlds is to change the business model, um, just as what we're seeing in social media, to be something that is uh, never harmful to people. The, the business model of advertising and of targeting and influencing people's behavior of surveilling their activity, which is prominent in social media, is something that we can't bring to the metaverse. The good news is we don't have to. Um, Second Life makes a great business today, and it doesn't uh, do ads. It does fees instead. But would you argue you could have a better business by targeting? Because that's the risk, isn't it, in the metaverse? It's the same kind of playbook. I think if we get into these tight loops where companies are optimizing to make money around right. um, behavioral modification, we are going to see some very uh, dark outcomes, uh, such as those predicted by science fiction. But it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, Second Life as a business per person makes more money than either YouTube or Facebook per person per year, say. And uh, its basic access is free. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the case. But there certainly, as you say, is a strong argument for you know pursuing advertising as a dominant model given how much impact it's had on the tech industry it, i mean that's a fascinating point is it scalable can you maintain that monetization per person scaling it up to the kind of number of users that the likes of facebook or youtube have because it makes sense to me when well, you've only got a million users but if you scale it up then by definition the fraction you know, changes I think that's true, and we will have to find out. And I hope to be one of the people continuing to help guide that process. But 
I, I do think that larger services, say, a, you know, a media service like a Netflix or, you know, a provider that's, uh, you know, charging a sort of a fixed fee and giving you access to a library is some evidence that we can do it, that virtual worlds uh, can uh, not harm people uh, as they're increasingly widely deployed. What about the moderation of content too? I mean, I, I actually do love the idea of being able to engage with different people and engage with people all over the world in this kind of alternative universe, but you're never quite sure who you're engaging with. There's dark corners that can be found in any kind of uh, internet community. How do you moderate that kind of behavior? I platform? think moderation, moderation at scale is gonna be a big challenge. Uh, yeah. And one that, as you say, we, we've seen a lot of experiments. I don't think we've seen the right way of moderating for virtual world. I think what we've learned from Second Life is that enabling people to have the right amount of strength so that they can you know, work out their own tensions between each other is a fundamental thing that is of course true in the real world and should be true in virtual worlds as well. But that's quite different than what's uh, been moderation, say, in chat rooms. And I think we can't do the same thing in, in the virtual world that we could there. What are you gonna do at Second Life? What's the game plan from here on out, Philip? And, and how do you compete? How do you take the race of some of the bigger competitors that they're only just starting out in the metaverse? And, you know, you guys have a lot of experience. Well, I think the way you compete, uh, well, the way you scale, now scaling, just getting to a lot of people in the same place is one of the technical challenges. It can be achieved. Uh, we're definitely getting closer. You know, we're seeing larger events online, but we're still not at the place where you can have a thousand people standing listening to a music concert at the same time. Um, I think that, uh, you know, learning, taking what we know and, and scaling it up, you know, building something that is, uh, you know, based on a basic environment where people can, uh, you know, do things uh, the way they want to and, and do things in a way that's different in every community. Uh, that's what we have to do. There's a lot, uh, there's a lot of work to be done to, uh, you know, go from a million to a billion. We're not there. There's, there's more hype out there in this space right now than there is capacity. But, uh, you know, I think we're going to see something in software in the next five years that'll be pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, even internet capacity, bandwidth in order to be able to sustain more people doing this, given what we've seen with um, Zoom calls and WebEx users around the world. Who pays? Who should pay for this infrastructure? I guess is one of my questions. Telcos, the users um, or the builders of this. And should someone be in control, Philip? <laughs> As I said earlier, I think that we can build a metaverse type virtual world environment where uh, people bear the right share of, you know, hosting it in the same way that we might think about putting up a website and paying fees for that today. I think as, a, as we touched on earlier, it's super important that we do that and not resort to advertisement because of that risk for harm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's possible. And then yeah. as to whether anyone should control it, uh, I think the simple answer is no. Um, this is the sort of thing that to uh, both to scale and to be safe, uh, as with the Internet itself, it has to be something that is built in parallel by, you know, probably millions of different people. And uh, again, we've got to build the standards and the protocols to make that possible. I remember having these conversations about the um, early days of the Internet, and I asked the same question about control. And there's the responses I would get was, you know, users. Ultimately, it has to be self-policed and my head would explode. And I think my head just partially exploded. <laughs> Philip, we'll continue the conversation. Philip Rosedale, founder and strategic advisor of Linden Lab and co-founder of High Fidelity. Great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you. Thank okay, you. coming up, 
Fancy a flying future? A trip like this may be just 12 months away. That story, next. Welcome back to First Move and finally, it's, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, and it's not Superman either. It's better. It is a flying car. Yes, science fiction fans are setting their sights on the skies over Slovakia, where regulators have approved a so-called air car as airworthy. On this particular flight, it landed in the Slovakian capital, transformed into a car and drove downtown. Anna Supergirl Stewart joins us now to discuss. Anna, if you ever get the chance to drive one of these, I might have to fight you for the opportunity. What do we make of this? (laughs) I'd like to be the flying car correspondent. Unfortunately, I'm echoing, so I'm just going to take you out of my ear for a moment, Julia. Ah. Yeah, this sounds pretty dreamy, doesn't it? Imagine being stuck in traffic. You you press a button, you grow some wings, and off you fly. And this is exactly what has happened in the test flights that this company has done. This is a Slovakian company. Uh, It did 70 hours of test flights. It had 200 takeoffs and landings. uh, And it has received a certificate of airworthiness from Slovakia's transport authority. As you say, it has shown it can fly from one airport to another, touch down, transform into a car, and then travel into a city. Pretty cool. Now, there are a few different uh, flying cars on the market, or at least in concept stage. And Julia, I was lucky enough to actually get uh, get a go in one of them at least I got to sit in one pal five it was at Goodwood the uh, the festival of speed and actually you are seeing these flying cars as a regular site now at tech shows also auto shows around the world urban mobility is a hot topic and this is clearly where some investors see the future now the problem is the reason I didn't fly is because while some of these cars are getting licenses to fly around Europe for instance you need a license yourself you need a pilot's license to fly these uh, and I haven't found actually a single flying car that you could take off from a public road in which of course is the ultimate dream to escape the traffic uh, most of them are still in concept stage clearly this one is nearing uh, something that could come onto the market they're hoping that could be happening in around 12 months time dreams don't become a reality overnight what i want to know though is how much will it cost because the last one i yes! saw was entry level four hundred thousand dollars <laughs> What a bargain. I was literally just Googling flights to Slovakia because that's where we need to go, clearly, to go and drive one of these things. And I saw top speed of 186 miles per hour. Anna, you are a pro with the earpiece. Good job. Thank you. In and out. I saw. (laughs) Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Okay, that's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.